Well, good evening to you. My name is Chris, and uh, I get to be one of the pastors here. It is good for me to be in worship with you. Uh, Today is November 10th. It is the second Sunday in the month of November, and every November we take the month to talk about significant saints, uh, and we tell the story of saints. Uh, And uh, we tell the story of saints because the scriptures invite us to do so. So I want to invite you, if you would, to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to start at verse 33. And uh, I have friends who have Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, I'd love to be able to lend you one or you can have it. We have Bibles in Spanish. For those of you who are practicing your Spanish or Spanish is your first, uh, Spanish is your heart language. We need some Bibles over here if we could. And I want to invite you to stand as we, uh, as we honor the reading of God's word for us out of Hebrews chapter 11 and Hebrews chapter 12. So hear the word of the Lord for us this evening. By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice, and received what God had promised them. They shut the mouth of lions, quenched the flames of fire, and escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength. They became strong in battle and put whole armies to fight. Women received their loved ones back again from death. But others were tortured, refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Some were jeered at and their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in prisons. Some died by stoning. Some were sawed in half and others were killed with the sword. Some went about wearing skins of sheep and goat, destitute and oppressed and mistreated. They were too good for this world wandering over deserts and mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. All these people earned a good reputation because of their faith, yet none of them received all that God had promised, for God had something better in mind for us, so that they would not reach perfection without us. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge cloud of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated at the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. This is the word of God for the people of God. And let us say together, Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So we believe that it is important to remember the story of the saints. And while some saints are venerated, Paul says that anyone who has been baptized as Christian is a saint. And saints are those whose stories have had a deep impact on us. They have, they have influenced us. And also their, their stories, the reason that we tell their stories is because their stories cause us to reflect on our own. So we take the month of November and we try to tell the story, or at least part of the story, which we're going to do tonight, of a particular saint. So today I want to take a look at the amazing life of Frederick Douglass. Scholars say that Douglas was the most photographed person of the 19th century. His influence was wide and deep in the areas of politics, culture, and theology. 
He was born Frederick Augustus Washington Bailey somewhere around 1817 or 1818. He was born into slavery in Talbot County, Maryland. He died in 1895 as a free man. He was an abolitionist, a preacher, a statesman, an author, an orator, a social reformer, a gender equality activist, and a theologian. After escaping from slavery in Maryland, he he took on the surname Davis when it was suggested by a friend who was reading the book Lady of the Lake. And he became a national leader in the abolitionist movement in Massachusetts and in New York, gaining note for his oratory skills and his incisive anti-slavery writings. His life went from being in the pig trough to the White House. He was beaten by evil masters, and he gave consultation to the President of the United States. Frederick Douglass was married twice, first to Anna Murray, a free black woman. She was instrumental in helping him run away from the South into the safe haven of the North, where uh, there he was able to, uh, where he, excuse me, it was there that he gained influence uh, through her and that he was able to gain influence through the good work of other white abolitionists. And after her passing, he then married a white woman. Her name was Helen Pitts. She was a woman suffragist and an abolitionist. Douglas was an author writing many books and articles. This week I read two of his books and I would encourage you to read them. The first that I read was his 1845 autobiography called Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, an American Slave. And the other one was My Bondage and My Freedom, which was written 10 years later. His life and his story must be heard. And our, compass, our capacity to continue in the systems of prejudice and racism and fear will continue if we do not imagine our place in his story. These are systems that are held together by politics. They're held together by economics, by our past, by our language, and even our religion. So, as our friend Joanna Smith says, that we must not just hear his story, we, we need to listen to it. Douglas never knew what his actual age was. As was, his custom, as was custom for babies born into slavery, within days after his birth, he was separated from his mother, Harriet Bailey, and he was placed in the care of his grandmother a dozen or so miles from where his mother worked. And even though she worked so far away, 12 miles... At night, she would make the walk to come see him, traveling the whole distance by foot after she had been working in the fields all day. She did this at the risk of life and limb, knowing that to show up late for work in the morning meant that she risked uh, a whipping. And on the few occasions that she came, she would come to lie down next to baby Frederick. She would nurse him and get him to sleep. But in the morning, when he would wake, she was gone. And he says he never really knows what his mother looked like, as he never, ever got to see her in the daylight. Harriet died when Frederick was about seven years old, and uh, not truly knowing his mother, he, he never felt an attachment to her or to his siblings. He said that when he heard of her death, it was like, it was like hearing that, the news of, of that of a stranger. 
But one has to wonder, even though he didn't know his mom very well, if the persistence and the determination that was in Frederick came from her. Frederick never knew his father, but because of his light skin, rumors whispered suggested that his father was actually his master, Mr. Thomas Ald. And later, Douglas responded to the criticisms of his interracial marriage by saying that his first marriage had been to someone the color of his mother, and the second was to someone the color of his father. The idea that his father was also his master was of little consequence to Frederick, except to say this, evil was protected by law, and it had been ordained by the slaveholders that the children of slave women shall in all cases follow the conditions of their mothers. And he said this, this was, of course, done too obviously to administer to the slaveholders' own lusts and to make a gratification of their wicked desires profitable as well as pleasurable. This was a cunning arrangement that slaveholders created, and it happened more frequently uh, than, than one might suspect. Slaveholders received pleasure and profit while despair was left in the woman. At age six, he was chosen to serve in his plantation owner's big house. And Frederick's young life was filled with horrors and brutality that cannot be imagined. And the possibility that his master could also have been his father and could treat him, his own children, with such evil is sickening. Slave children were provided very little clothing, whether it be summer or winter. There were no beds or blankets. On the coldest nights, he was naked. He tried to warm himself in, the, in a burlap sack. The only thing that they had to eat was mush, and depending on who the overseer was at the time, he was given very little and expected to work, whether sick or well. And in the cases when he was given enough to eat, he wasn't given enough time to eat, thus contributing to the psychological manipulation and control. There was, there was no meat for these children, nor vegetables, which is a sickening reality since many times children had to work in the gardens of their masters. And then the mush was put on a large wooden tray or a trough and set down upon the ground. And the children were called like little pigs and they would come and devour the mush. Some with oyster shells, some had a piece of a shingle, some with naked hands, but none of them had spoons. He that ate the fastest got the most. He that was the strongest secured the best place. And few left the trough satisfied. It was, however, the experiencing of the execution of punishment that really held Frederick and his counterparts in their place. He recalled the first time he witnessed this. As a young man, Frederick watched his aunt as she was stripped and beaten for going out one night to enjoy the company of a young man. His name was Lloyd's Nest. Lloyd's Ned. Frederick describes his aunt by saying she was a woman of noble form and of gracious proportions, having very few equals and fewer superiors in personal appearance among the colored or white women of our neighborhood. Well, her going out enraged the master, whose name does not deserve to be acknowledged or remembered. Because of her beauty, one can assume 
why he prevented her from seeing the one she loved and why he set out to beat her when she sought him out. He took her to the kitchen, stripped her, bound her hands, tied her hands on a hook attached to the rafter and a ceiling. And as she balanced herself on the tips of her toes on a chair, he rolled up the sleeve and in a torturous manner that does not need to be described here except to say that he beat her with, heavy, with a heavy cowskin until blood dripped on the floor. Then he left her hanging there for many hours until he was rested up to do it all over again. This was the first of many beatings that Frederick saw and personally experienced. A few years later, uh, though, Frederick was sent to the home of his master Thomas's brother, Hugh, and his wife Sophia Ald in Baltimore. And he says there he saw something that he had never seen before. It was a white face beaming with the most kindly emotions. It was the face of his new mistress, Sophia Ald. He said, I wish I could describe the rapture that flashed through my soul. It was new and it was a strange sight to me. Frederick had never met a kind master before, but saw the warmth of Sophia Ald. She was working with her own son on his alphabet, and so she began to teach Frederick his ABCs. She also provided bread to eat and clothes to wear. Well, later, Hugh, her husband, found out what Sophia had been doing, and he was furious because teaching a slave to read was illegal in, the, in, the, in slave states. Hugh argued that learning spoiled a slave. He would once become unmanageable, Hugh said, and be of no value to his master. Hugh also argued that this restriction was for the good of the slave. How disgusting is that? He said it could do him no good, but a great deal of harm. It would make him discontented and unhappy. And here we begin to see... And Frederick began to see how sinister the institution of slavery actually is. It's not just the, the blatant and obvious actions like beatings. Not only are those things evil, but the systems like this, they, they conjure up lies. They conjure up lies that negotiate and twist and, and make horrific acts righteous. These words of Hugh all sank deep into the heart of Frederick. They stirred sentiments in him and introduced him to a darkness that he had not previously understood. He felt that at this point he would break, he would break down mentally, even as a young boy. And he now understood what had been a perplexing difficulty for him, the white man's power to enslave the black man. Well, Hugh's rebuke changed Sophia. Frederick noticed uh, a new disheartening disposition came over her. And when she once acted with a gentle heart and kindness, she now treated him with cruelty. She became mean and quick-tempered. And Frederick noted that slavery proved as injurious to her as it did to him. It soon arrested her. Her qualities, her heavenly qualities and her tender heart became a heart of stone. And he watched her change. But Frederick began to change as well. Because that small taste of education did something for him. 
Until this time, he had been confined in the galling chains of slavery, he said. But he realized going to Baltimore laid the foundation and it opened the gateway to all my subsequent prosperity. Teaching him the alphabet had given him an itch. And he says, you may call me superstitious, but this event was the divine working in my favor. I had a deep conviction that slavery would not always be able to hold me within its foul embrace. And even in the darkest hours of my career in slavery, I had this living word of faith and the spirit of hope. And it did not leave me, but it remained in me like ministering angels to cheer me through the gloom. He said, this good spirit was of God. And I offered him thanksgiving and praise. In a strange sort of way, Hugh Auld had given him something purely by accident, but Frederick saw it as a gift. It was a, revol- it was a resolve settled in him. And even though he was saddened at the thought of losing his mistress, what his master dreaded most, Frederick desired most. What his master loved, Frederick hated. That which was, uh, that which was to Hugh Auld was a great evil and was to be shunned. Frederick saw it as a great good and it was to be sought out diligently. And that which he argued against... Uh, for slaves to read only served to inspire Frederick with a determination, excuse me, a determination to learn. So Frederick went about making plans to learn how to read and the plan he adopted and the one that made him most successful was this. He became friends with all the little white boys and he said, I converted them into my teacher's So this was his plan because he was fed better at the Alds than anywhere else and because he ate better than some of the poor white children he would take some bread and a book with him when he was sent off to do errands. He would do the errands quickly so that he might have time for a lesson later and then he would trade his bread for the more valuable bread called knowledge. In his book, Frederick said that he was tempted to, to share the names of some of, those, some of those kids because he was so grateful to them, but he did not. Not because they would injure, the, injure him or go try to find him, but because of embarrassment. And he said because it was almost an impartable offense to teach slaves to read in this Christian country. I think we should pay attention to this quote. It is haunting. I think we need to admit by looking at the life of Frederick Douglass and hearing his story that evil hides within Christian systems and Christian narratives and Christian institutions. And maybe we as Christian people should not fear the evil that is easy to see, but maybe we should fear that there are evils that we choose not to see. This week, several white men strolled down Northeast 23rd Street, the predominantly African-American side of town, armed with handguns on their belts and military-grade assault rifles on their chest. The new permitless carry law was put into effect here in our state on November 1st, and this was not their neighborhood. And they stood in front of one of Oklahoma City's oldest Muslim communities and their, their gathering place and another faith community, Israel United in Christ. And they did this as they, they claimed it was their American and their Christian right. But truly, it was a racial act of intimidation inciting fear. 
Frederick's longing for freedom, we need to admit and recognize, is still the longing for persons of color in our country and also in our churches. And my question is, is their equality and their freedom the longing for us, those of us who are white? It was through reading, specifically a publication called The Columbian Orator that kept hope alive in Frederick Douglass. It was in this publication that he read Sheridan's speech on Catholic emancipation, and he said, they gave tongue to interesting thoughts in my own soul. And this instilled hope within him. It was shortly after this that Frederick was sent to work at a shipyard. He was paid, but because he had an owner, 90% of what he made, he had to hand over to his owner. It was the, however, it was at the shipyard where he was given the skills that would serve him later once he, disco- uh, once he was able to escape into the north. But it was also there in the shipyard where he met two Irishmen that gave him hope and he, that, that he needed in order to pursue his escape. They asked him one day if he was free or slave and when he told them slave, their countenance was downcast and they encouraged him to escape to the north. But Frederick pretended not to be interested because many white men would encourage slaves to run, only then to capture them across the border and then return them for a reward. But the resolve was settling in him again, and Frederick knew that he must now do whatever it took to learn how to write. He could read, but now he needed to write. And eventually, we know the story that he forged his master's handwriting, created papers, and made his run into freedom. But the capacity to write also came in those shipyards. He would watch the ship's carpenters cut timber for use and and they'd write a letter on the timber indicating which part of the ship that specific piece of timber was to go. And then he soon learned the names of those letters and he went about copying them. Uh, After that, then he would meet any boy that he could find who could write and he would bet them that he could write as well as they did. And of course, no little boy can turn down a bet, especially little white boys, because they were not going to be outdone by a black boy, thus providing a classroom there on the dock. This education from reading and writing to misconduct and beatings instilled within Frederick the deepest of desires. As much as he could, Frederick read the Bible as well as newspapers and political literature. This this combination ignited a moral opposition to slavery and he became a firm believer in the equality of all peoples, whether they were white, black, female, Native American, or Chinese immigrants. He was also a believer in, 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 he was also a believer in dialogue and in making alliances across racial and ideological divides. He was a man far ahead of his time. But it was at Captain, it was on Captain Ald's, Captain Thomas Ald's plantation. Even before his contemplation of the anti-slavery movement, that his mind was seriously awakened to the subject of religion. He was about 13 years old when he felt the need for God as father and provider, and his awakening came under the preaching of a white Methodist minister named Hansen. Well, according to Frederick, uh, one thing that he knew very well was, he said, I was wretched and I had no means of making myself otherwise. 
And if nothing else, I could at least pray for light. After his religious experience, he consulted with an older slave whose name was Charles Johnson. And in tones of holy affection, he taught Frederick how to pray and what to pray for. And he said, I was for weeks a poor, poor, broken-hearted mourner traveling through the darkness and misery of doubts and fears. But I finally found that change of heart which comes by casting all one's cares upon God and by having faith in Jesus Christ as the Redeemer, friend, and Savior who's, who, who diligently seek Him. And after this, I saw the world in a whole new light. But two things happened at Frederick's conversion. The first is this, that he found that he loved all. He found that he loved slaves, and he found that he loved slaveholders alike. But the second thing was this, he found also that he abhorred slavery and all systems of inequity more now than ever. You know, true Christianity is not a religion that loves without hate. It actually is a religion of both love and hate. It comes with a new type of love, a love for neighbors, righteousness, equality, mercy, justice. And a conversion to Christianity means opening ourselves up to hatred. Hatred towards systems that rise up against these righteous and virtuous things. Well, Master Thomas hired Frederick out to a man named William Freeland when he was about 15 or 16 years old. And while he was there, he began to teach the other slaves on the plantation to read the New Testament at a weekly Sabbath school or a Sunday school that he started. And as word spread, the interest among the slaves in learning to read was so great that, that more than 40 slaves would attend the lessons. For about six months, their study went on relatively unnoticed and while Freeland remained pretty complacent about their activities, the other plantation owners became incensed about their slaves being educated. So one Sunday after church, they burst in on the gathering armed with clubs and stones to disperse this congregation permanently. But Frederick continued to lead the classes in hiding. All of these things, along with the sense of divine providence that was set within him, set within Douglas uh, the determination to seek out his liberty and freedom. And, and I'm, I'm learning something. I'm learning that the longing for this freedom is, is resolute within the hearts of pe the people of color in this country. It's just as resolute in their hearts as it was for Frederick Douglass back then. And I'm also learning that this urgency for freedom in our brothers and sisters of color does not exist in the majority of white Americans or white Christians. Frederick's theology was the true Christian theology. It was one of freedom, and his great concern was to now have the world converted. And the Christianity and the church that propagated the agenda that he saw in the South was the worst form of evil. This form of evil was confirmed when in August of 1833 at a Methodist camp meeting, Thomas Auld, his master, possibly his dad, found religion. And according to Douglas, he was a 
he says these words, he was quite a fish worth, worth catching and he had been long the, the object of interest to the church and its ministers. It was because he had money and standing. Well, a huge structure had been built for the week-long meeting and behind the preacher's stand, a narrow space was marked out for those who were people of color. There were no seats provided for this class of people. And when the preacher would address them, if they were addressed at all, he would refer to them as the leftovers. It was at that, it was there at that camp meeting that Master Thomas found religion. And Frederick Douglass thought, he will now emancipate his slaves. And if he won't do this, he at least will become kind to us. But Frederick Douglass was sorely disappointed. Master Thomas was Master Thomas still. Master Thomas there that night went forward, had a single teardrop, and all the people proclaimed, look at Captain Ald, he has come through. But when, while Frederick wanted to be charitable in hope, he was doomed to disappointment. There was no emancipation, there was no kindness, and instead things grew worse. And this is what he saw in all of the slaveholders and ministers of the quote-unquote gospel. The only conversion that slaveholders experienced was a conversion whereby their piety now made them more cruel. And I must ask, could this be us? Do we get more pious and cruel in our piety the more religious we get? Do we eliminate others from participating in new and glorious freedom? Do we make participation harder by our rejection and our dehumanization? Jesus warned of this. He warned against such things. He warned against allegiances, allegiances split, desires for power. He, he warned against traded, trading people for profit or position. He said it's difficult for rich people or people in power to enter into the kingdom. And this was the case for Thomas Auld. His conversion made him a man of strict piety and legalism. And as his power in the church increased, his power over others increased as well. His house became this house of prayer. They sang hymns there. They went to Sabbath school. He became one of the Sabbath school teachers. And then he became one of the preachers in the church. And the old house became a safe haven for traveling preachers. Those preachers would receive his generous hospitality. He stuffed them while he starved his slaves. And while the Methodist book of discipline condemned slavery and called for emancipation, those Methodist itinerant preachers who came to visit paid no attention to those working on the plantation. They, they did not speak of mercy or emancipation and they were concerned only with satisfying the state of the white person's soul. On, according to Frederick, on Sunday, Mr. Thomas, his master, would preach about kindness and mercy, brotherly love, but on, on Monday morning, he would establish his own authority by whipping his slaves in advance of their deserving it. He would shed a tear over the poor, the lost, and the ruined sinners, but his pity did not reach out to the blacks who tilled the fields. 
Frederick said, I, I seen him tie up the lame and, and maim women and whip her in a manner most brutal and, and shocking. And then with blood chilling blasphemy, he would quote a passage from the scripture, that servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. And the most evil forms of, of rationalization Emancipation wasn't evidence of conversion. Prosperity was. And, and Mr. Thomas would claim, I hold my slaves for their own good. He was convinced that to whip a good slave kept them good, and to whip a bad slave made them good. Throughout history, people of color have been struck down and time and time and time and time again, they have been expected to get up under their own power. I hear this rhetoric a lot. It comes in phrases like this, lazy. Why don't they just get a job? They seem to be working the system. Why won't they learn our language? Why aren't they more grateful? Frederick Douglass said, if he was asked to name the three men in town whose lives were most like our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, the first three would have been Garrison West, a class leader, Wright Fairbanks, a class leader, Thomas Ald, a class leader. And yet these were the three men that ferociously rushed upon my Sabbath school with rocks and sticks, with mob-like missiles, and forbade our meeting again. And he said, let the reader reflect on the fact that in this Christian country, this Christian country, men and women are having to hide from professors of religion in barns, in the woods and fields, and they hide in order to learn to read the Holy Bible. Well, I, I have three observations from Frederick Douglass, I have many, many observations, but I'm going to name three, okay, from his life. And I, this is just your pastor speaking to you. The first observation is this, religion, Christian religion, can be a covering for the most horrid of crimes. Theology mixed up, twisted up, it, it destroys in, in Douglas's words, it is the justifier of barbarity, a, a sanctifier of the most hateful frauds, and a securer of shelter under which the darkest, foulest, grossest, and most infernal abominations fester and flourish. But true religion is displayed in the one who stands against religious systems that oppresses and, and, and makes others suffer. And true religion is the one by which we see the Christ who suffers alongside as an act of protest. This is why St. Paul says that we are, we are commissioned and we are committed to work out our, our faith and fear and trembling, listening to the best of our ability to the stories of these saints. This is the way by which we see and hear and listen to and live alongside our neighbor. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. This history and these stories are sometimes, all the time, hard for us to listen to. And they are tense. 
Some of us are tempted to say, Frederick Douglass died 124 years ago, which seems like a long time ago. Or some of us are tempted to say, well, I didn't come to church for this. You come to church to be built up, not to be torn down. But I want to remind you that the gospel is bad news before it is ever good news. And St. Frederick's life becomes a model for us of how to live into the bad stuff, into the hard stuff. And he gives us hope that maybe there is a way to journey out of our entrapment, our perceptions, our prejudices, our fears, the oppression that we feel or the oppression that we cast upon somebody else. And here is the pastoral word. If you feel uncomfortable tonight, do not push too quickly away from the uncomfortable feelings that you have. But instead, let us, let us consider, is this that I feel the move of God's spirit in me? Is this that I feel the move of God's spirit or that we feel the move of God's spirit in us, correcting us, convicting us, maybe even in a strange way, transforming us. And the third thing I want to say is this. This is a word to my white brothers and sisters of this congregation. You do not fully understand. And I do not fully understand how incredibly difficult it is for our brothers and sisters of color to attend this church. To try to hide our prejudice, white people often say, I don't see color. First of all, that's not true. And second of all, our brothers and sisters of color are fully aware of their color and our color as we try to exist together in this space. You need to know that I think that they are brave and they are committed and their presence is evidence of Frederick Douglass-like hope. They have reason to be hurt and angry and they always have to bear the burden of reconciliation. And his sainthood is transferred to them just by their mere presence and their participation. As a predominantly white church that tells a mainly white story, that has a white Jesus staring down upon us, we have failed in knowing their stories and we've been failing at telling their stories. So we say that our con conversion comes in our willingness to live in, in virtuous, these virtuous, righteous lives on behalf of our brothers and sisters. And the truth of the matter is this, anything less than that is not conversion. Many times what we do is we, we do this out of guilt or because we don't know what to do or because we're fearful. But a few minutes ago, we said that we were all here for transformation. And, and that, and I believe that Perhaps we are who are, those of us who are in a dominant cultural position are not the ones bringing transformation. I think that maybe God just might be good enough that we are the ones who are here to be converted. We're the ones who are here to be transformed and that the Spirit of God is the empower to carry out this righteousness within us. And I think that happens when we know and we tell their stories so that their stories might become our stories and it happens, that empowerment happens when we meet around the Lord's table. When, when Douglas escaped the north... He went to worship to take communion at the Elm Street Methodist Episcopal Church, 
which if you don't know this, this church, this church we're sitting in right now, this was originally uh, a Methodist Episcopal church. He went there with full intention to join their membership. And when he got there, he was surprised to see that all of the black people sat in the gallery, like up in the balcony, while all the white people sat in their respective seats there on the floor in the sanctuary. And when it was time to receive, only the whites were invited to the table. So after the benediction, the white people were then dismissed. And then that's when the black folks descended from the gallery. But they stood at the, they were, they stood at the back of the wall at a distance from the altar. And it was then that the pastor, Brother Bonnie, who was very animated, looked to these women and men who seemed like, according to Frederick Douglass, black sheeped pen. That was when he invited them. And he said to them, come forward, colored friends. You too have an interest in the blood of Christ. God does not treat people according to their rank. And they came forward. And Frederick Douglass went out. It was a humiliating event. Brothers and sisters, I want to let you know that this is why we have an open table. We say this every single week, that this is a table for all. This table, is the, is, uh, this table of our Lord is the way we practice a new story into our lives. It's a way by which we participate in Franklin, uh, excuse me, in Frederick Douglass's story. It's a way by which we participate in the great cloud of witnesses. And it's here, this is why we say that our meeting together at the Lord's table, it saves us. So we tell this story every single week and it goes like this, that Jesus, on the night before before he was betrayed by those he came to save, at dinner he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he said, friends, this is my body which is broken for you, all of you. And when you eat it, I want you to remember me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant that comes in my blood. Whenever you do this, I want you to do so in affectionate remembrance of me. His life and his service was both a sacrifice and a protest. And it is an invitation to something new. So I say it to you every single week, all, all, All who are open to this transforming work of Christ are welcome. But understand that your conversion changes you. You are welcome to this table and you are welcome in this community. And everyone who is open to believe in this good work and wants to receive the grace that comes from God is welcome to his table. Here it is where we live in attention that we follow the one who was the victim of this world and says to his friends, do not worry because I have overcome it, so that all may participate. We want no barriers. Our bread is gluten-free. Our wine is non-alcoholic. I invite you to exit the left side of of your row, move down one of our aisles with your hands cupped, ready to receive that which is good and that which comes from God. We do not receive communion here. Excuse me, we do not take communion here. We receive it because it is a great gift to us. So approach what these have to, approach one of these, listen to what they have to say, Dip the bread into the cup and then be grateful. When you are ready, my friends, 
you are welcome to this Lord's table.